Today's readings come from Genesis 4, 1 to 5, Genesis 8, 18 to 22, and Genesis 14, 17 to 24. These are God's words. And the man knew Eve, his woman, and she, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in, process, and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground an offering unto Yahweh. And Abel he also brought of the first, firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Yahweh had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. Genesis 8. And Noah went forth and his sons and his woman and his son's woman with him, every living thing, every crawler, every flyer, whatsoever moveth upon the earth after their families went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar unto Yahweh and took of every clean beast and of every clean flyer and offered ascensions on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the sweet savour and Yahweh said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything, everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, after his return from the slaughter of Chidolomir. And the kings that were with him at, at the Vale of Shaveh, the same as the king's vale. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was, and he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me persons, or give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread, nor a sandal strap, nor aught that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the youngsters have eaten, and the portion of the men that went with me, Ina, Eshkol, and Mamir. Let them, let them take, let them take in their portion. I invite Non to give us God's word. The frog in my throat thanks you for your service, Mark, and let me briefly pray to thank God for his word. Father, thank you for the blessing of the word that you have given us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you poured it out through. Please send that spirit now to bind that word to us, plant it in our hearts and make it to grow 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And please also help my voice not to fail. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated.
the past few weeks, Providence has led us to consider the nature of sacrifice more closely and comprehensively than we have in the past. And I'm not sure why, but that is certainly where the Spirit has led us, and I have learned to try to pay attention to such things. If you remember, when I last preached, it was to look at the calling of mothers, and we considered the example of Hannah, who offered up her firstborn son, Samuel, to serve God at the tabernacle. My overall aim in that sermon was to help us to think through the sacrificial nature of motherhood. Why does motherhood come with so much pain, and how should we think about that and deal with it? Last week, Jared preached on the application of Psalm 129 to the Lord Jesus and how the plowing of his back, as it were, fulfills the furrows dug by the enemy into Israel for their fruitfulness. And this is important for us because we are called to live like Christ. In fact, it is foundational to the gospel that we are united to Christ and so we share in everything that he has, which means that we live according to the pattern of his life, which is, of course, death and resurrection. Unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. And today, I want to spend a little time thinking about the connection between death and resurrection and sacrifice and pain and how these things fit together with Christian piety. I've been working through the various callings of God upon his people in this sermon series and one of the most difficult and paradoxical and counterintuitive callings is his call upon us to sacrifice ourselves. We have touched on this, or we've taken it for granted, in many previous sermons, because it lies underneath all of what God calls us to do. But today I want to kind of peel it back and expose it and ask why. I want to lay out the sacrificial logic of creation so that you can understand it a little better. I think it's important to do this, not just because we seem to have been led here, but because it is a truly foundational pattern that should profoundly influence our thinking as Christians. I don't think in the modern day that it really does influence our thinking very much, or at least... I think evangelicalism has successfully sliced and diced the pattern of sacrifice into a nice manageable chunk that will fit into a single pigeonhole. And while I'm very fond of pigeons, especially those Australian ones with the copper bits on their wings, I don't think that a pigeonhole is the proper place for something that is so foundational and so pervasive. You know what pervasive means? Pervasive means that it spreads through everything. Sacrifice is a pattern that gets into everything. I think every Christian probably recognizes that sacrifice is at the heart of the gospel, so that should give us some hint about its importance, but it's not just a gospel thing. Or maybe a better way to say that would be the gospel is not something different to how God works everywhere else. The cross of Christ is not like a skyhook that God miraculously hangs from nothing unattached to the rest of creation as 
an utterly unique intervention to save us from the effects of sin. Rather, the cross of Christ is the peak of the mountain that builds upon the entire pattern of God's work in creation. It is the highest point of life that is uh, uh, the highest point of a way of life, I should say, that is so fundamental to who God is and who we are as his image and what creation is as the physical expression of spiritual realities, that it goes all the way down, even to such mundane facts as how plants grow. Except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. It's John 12, 24. This is a good place to start because there are two things about this verse that are really undeniable. The first is that it is about the cross. And not just about Jesus' cross, but also about our own crosses. Let's read the larger passage to see the full meaning. This is shortly before Jesus is crucified, before he goes up to Jerusalem. He's speaking to his disciples for the last time. He gives his last kind of discourse, and he says, John 12, 23 to 27, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Amen, amen, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. He that loveth his life loseth it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. So Jesus' hour is at hand. He is soon to be crucified. And in this context, he tells us something important that we can learn from how wheat grows. That if we love our lives, we will lose them. And that if we hate our lives in this world, we will gain them eternally. The connection between this and his own cross is not spelled out here in John, but it is spelled out in a similar passage in Luke, where he says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever would save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So when Jesus talks about the grain of wheat going into the ground, the first thing we can absolutely say is that this is about the sacrifice of the cross, which we also participate in in our own lives. But the second thing that we can say with complete confidence is that it's about the natural design of wheat. And indeed, most plants and trees. Now, I mentioned before, evangelicalism tends to put sacrifice into a pigeonhole, and I think the pigeonhole it uses is the one labeled atonement. We have all been conditioned to think of sacrifice as a kind of atonement, have we not? It's like a covering over for sin. It, it makes amends for sin. That is, at least, the main reason for sacrifice in modern Western Christian thinking. Sacrifice is something that is necessary because of sin. But if there's one thing that should be obvious, one thing we can all agree on, it is that wheat had to fall to the ground and die in order to bear fruit before the fall. Genesis 1, God said, let the earth sprout sprouts, plants yielding seed, 
and fruit trees, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, wherein is the seed upon the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth sprouts, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit, wherein is the seed after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And then to Adam, he says, Behold, I have given you all plants yielding seed, which are upon the face of all the earth, and all trees in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you they shall be for food, and to every living thing of the earth, and to every flyer of the heavens, and to all that crawl upon the earth, wherein there is life, every green plant, food. And it was so. Now do you notice how strangely the plants are described in these passages? Plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, wherein is the seed? Why the strange emphasis on seed? Well, one reason is that seed is a very important concept in Scripture, and part of that reason is because seed teaches us things, including what Jesus is teaching us with the grain of wheat. For our purposes right now, what we can say for sure is that plants and trees definitely had seeds before the fall. That was a feature that Scripture specifically calls attention to. Seeds weren't things that God invented after man sinned. They are part of the creational design. Plants and trees were made to multiply through seeds, which means that from the beginning, from even before sin entered the world, the seed had to go into the ground and die in order to bear much fruit. That is how they were designed to work. Now, I don't want to labor the point. I'm not spelling this out because I think you don't know it or you might doubt it. Quite the opposite. It's something that we take very much for granted to such an extent that we haven't noticed how important and meaningful it is. In the same way, consider something else. Man is put in a garden full of plants and trees, which he is supposed to guard and serve in order to gain the wisdom that he needs to exercise the kingly rule, the dominion that he was made for. The garden is supposed to teach him, right? And the very first instruction that God gives to the man is to be fruitful, that is, to, to bear fruit as trees do. We've talked before about how men are like trees, trees are like men. Trees teach us about ourselves and about the key patterns of creation. They teach us the fractal nature of bodies, for instance. So when Adam is told that he must bear fruit and multiply, God expects him to look at the trees and understand what that means. Adam should expect that he himself has seed that must be planted somewhere in order for the fruit to appear. So the first instruction is to bear fruit, but the second instruction is to eat fruit. Behold, I have given you all plants yielding seed which are upon the face of all the earth and all trees in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you they shall be for food. So now Adam has another thing to think about. He will soon learn that for a tree to multiply itself, its seed must go into the ground and die. Only then will it bring forth new life. Now, let me just make a comment on this. It sounds a bit strange to us to speak of a seed dying because we're thinking biologically. It sounds incorrect. But God does not speak biologically. He speaks symbolically. Symbolism is about the appearance of things, the form of things. And when a seed goes into the ground, it appears to die. It is swallowed up by the earth. It gives itself up to the earth and goes into darkness and is not seen again. The earth, as it were, is a grave for the seed and then the tree grows out. This is 
what must happen for a plant to multiply itself, and Adam will soon discover this, but he will also discover that in order for he himself to remain alive, in order for him to sustain and grow his own body, which remember was made out of the earth, the fruit-bearing seed must go into him and die. Just as a seed gives itself up to the ground, which in Hebrew is Adama, and is swallowed by the Adama, becomes part of the Adama to produce a new plant, so the fruit gives itself up to Adam, is swallowed by Adam, becomes part of Adam in order to sustain Adam. It literally becomes part of his substance. And then, I hope you'll excuse me, but Adam has to eliminate the part of the fruit that could not be added to himself, and it comes out looking very much like dirt, and goes into the dirt, and somehow makes the dirt more fruitful as well. Now, if you think that these are all just incidental facts of creation that Adam was not supposed to reflect on and gain wisdom from about his own nature and the nature of the rulership and dominion and loving service that God had called him to, if that's what you think, I do not know what to say to you. So what does this have to do with sacrifice? Well, surely one of the truths that Adam would have discovered by reflecting on the creation was the necessity of some kind of death to bring forth life. Now, again, I don't mean death in the way that we tend to think of that term in light of the fall. I mean death as a kind of disintegration. We've talked a lot at various times about the idea of integration, of Jesus as the integration point of the cosmos, of how everything is being integrated into Christ it is being built into him, joined into him. He is the point that unites everything into a cohesive whole. But we've also seen that there is disintegration. Not everything will be integrated into Christ. For instance, some will be cast into the outer darkness, and there they will be outside, meaning they are not contained within the integrating principle. They're not part of the whole. I kind of hate this language because it sounds so philosophical, like I'm trying to bamboozle you with fancy words and clever reasoning, which is the very thing Paul, of course, warns against. But I use it because it seems to be the only language that we really understand as modern Christians. We no longer understand death properly. And so we have to find a different word to describe what is really going on with death. Because we think of death in biological terms. And that's natural, since Scripture certainly does speak of it largely in those terms. After all, human death is the major feature of the world since the fall. And it's also natural because we ourselves live in a world that has made science the measure of meaning. So we naturally look for the meaning of death in science. We think of it in scientific terms, biology, the cessation of human physical function. But that is not what death is as a pattern. It is how the pattern plays out when you're a wicked sinner. The pattern of disintegration plays out in your physical cessation. And that is because death as a pattern is disintegration. God tells Adam, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge, dying you will die. What does he mean? Did Adam drop dead when he ate? No. Adam was cut off from God. We know that Paul uses this language in the New Testament. We are all born dead in sin. 
Adam stopped being integrated into God, who of course is the source of life. And so eventually this had physical consequences because the physical images the spiritual. And so after another 930 years, Adam's body stopped working. It took 930 years for Adam to die after he died. 930 years for the workings of his body to disintegrate after he was disintegrated from God. To be disintegrated from God is the ultimate terrible death that all men fear. But it is not the only death. Adam was meant to learn about death through everything in the garden. He would have planted seeds in the ground and they would have disintegrated to produce new life. He would have pruned trees and they would have had their branches disintegrated from them in order to grow more abundantly. He would have learned to plow, cutting open the earth, disintegrating the, fact, uh, the face of the ground in order to make it more fruitful. He would have eaten, disintegrating fruit within his body in order to build it up and sustain it. And eventually, of course, he would have eaten the fruit of the tree of life in order to live forever. And he would have reflected also on the creation of his own wife, who was made out of his own disintegration. His mind disintegrated into sleep, and then God disintegrated his body, tearing open his side to create Eve before he came back up out of that death-like state. Okay, but again, you'll ask, what does this have to do with sacrifice? We are talking about death and disintegration. What is the connection specifically to sacrifice? Well, this should become very clear if we simply ask, what is sacrifice? Theologically, we've been taught to think of sacrifice in terms of atonement or substitution, making amendments. But in terms of plain, everyday English, we all know that to sacrifice something is to give it up. I dare say if you asked anyone what it means to sacrifice something, they would say, well, it means you have to give something up. And that phrase, give up, is not accidental. Human language is designed by God. Even when we don't intentionally do this, we speak symbolically. We don't give down. Sacrificing isn't giving something down. It isn't giving something sideways. It's giving something up. The give part makes sense. Give really is just a simpler way of saying disintegrate, isn't it? We take something that is ours and we make it not ours by, by pushing it away. It has to go somewhere else, which means we give it. Something that is integrated into us somehow, whether it is a property, you know, like a, a car or desire for chocolate perhaps, or a relationship with someone if you break up, for instance. Whatever it is, we take that thing and we break it out of ourselves and we push it away so that it is no longer part of us. But we do it in a direction. Why up? I don't imagine this will come as much of a surprise to you, but it's because the cosmos is hierarchical and there are things above us, the highest of which obviously is God. There is a great chain of being built into creation. Scientists like to talk about the food chain, but the food chain is just a scientific way to describe one slice of the symbolic creational chain that we have often called the cosmic mountain. Just as the fruit gives itself up for Adam, because Adam is greater than the fruit. So Adam is required to give up of himself for things that are greater than him. 
This is the essence of sacrifice. Not substitution, not atonement, but a giving up of your substance for something greater. Giving of your substance up to some higher thing, a disintegration upward. But why? It isn't an arbitrary giving up. We don't sacrifice just because the thing above us deserves it. The fruit doesn't give itself up for Adam because Adam deserves to eat it. Even Adam does not disintegrate a tenth of his substance to God because God deserves it. God does deserve it. But if you think about it, God also doesn't actually need it. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't use the sacrifice. So what is the purpose of it? Adam taught his sons to bring offerings to God. Why? Now, we automatically reach for atonement to answer the question, but while atonement and sacrifice are definitely connected, that is only because of sin. In fact, atonement is a kind of perverse pattern in sacrifice. It is not the creational design. It's something that was introduced because of the fall. Man is in danger of disintegrating from God himself into eternal death, and so some sort of stopgap is required to symbolically show that God is willing to prevent that. So the man gives up an animal instead, and that animal's life is completely disintegrated. Its blood, which is its soul, is poured out at the base of the altar. But that sacrifice only comes with Moses. Have you noticed that? There is no sin offering as such before the book of Leviticus. It is added to teach Israel specifically about the need for Christ, for the cross. But before that, the pattern of sacrifice is still everywhere in Genesis. Not sin offerings, but sacrifices. Cain and Abel bring offerings to God, but they are not sin offerings. They are tributes. That is the Hebrew word that is used. It is a particular kind of sacrifice later in Leviticus. That is a meal. It isn't offered for sin. And Genesis does not say that it is to cover sin. Sin certainly did need to be covered. But these sacrifices don't seem to be about that. In the same way, Noah offers sacrifices after coming out of the ark. But again, it's not a sin offering, it's an ascension. Another of the Levitical sacrifices is the ascension. And again, not for sin. Then Abram gives a tithe to God through Melchizedek, and tithes also are introduced into the Levitical system. The the word tithe is literally a tenth in Hebrew, and you were to give a tenth of everything to God. But again, not for sin. So what is it for? Well, let me answer a question with another question that brings the pattern down to a more mundane level. Might help you to understand this, but it's very hard to... (laughs) God's all the way up there. How are we to understand this? But this pattern doesn't just occur between us and God. It occurs everywhere in life. Why do you give up what you earn for your family? Or take it back a step. Why do you give up your time and your energy and your attention and your wisdom and intelligence and skills and talents for your employer? Well, because you get money back, right? But also, if you're lucky, because you get to be part of something greater, a body that is achieving something worthwhile in the world that you could not achieve by yourself. 
I gave up my time and wisdom to you in preparing this sermon because I believe that what I build by doing so, what I participate in by doing so, is of greater value than my own individual desires, my own individual life. Watching movies or playing computer games is more fun, but it's not more fulfilling because giving up my time and attention to a computer game has no lasting value. I would be pouring myself into something worthless. Giving it up to the body of Christ is another matter. Now, of course, we don't always give up our time and our labor for such important things. We often do it simply for money. But why do we do it for money? Why does money matter to us at all? Not because it's worth something in itself, but because we give the money itself up for things that do matter. We give it up for our family, our household, our church, our friends, our lives. All of this is sacrifice. It is a disintegration of something from us for the purpose of integrating it into something greater. We give ourselves up to a larger body. We lose something of ourselves by becoming members in that body because we have to accept the meaning that is imposed by that body. We no longer get to be our own thing. We become part of the larger thing, which means that we have to be part of the larger thing. A foot doesn't get to be a head, even if it wants to be a head. It has to give up its desire for the sake of the body, but I think you will all agree that a foot attached to a body is a lot better off than a foot that is not attached to a body. In the same way, we give up of ourselves to integrate ourselves into larger bodies that are greater than we are. Often we have to give up something of ourselves to do that. A wife has to promise to submit to and obey her husband. She has to give up some element of her own freedom and agency, which the world would say, that's horrible, don't do that. Which is, of course, why the world is now failing. But nothing that we give up is greater than what we give back. Because by definition, the body is greater than its parts. When we are integrated into a body, we become greater than we were because we are part of a whole that is greater than we are. But we do have to give up something to do it. This is why sacrifice is a pattern in scripture from the very beginning of Genesis, long before the law of Moses, thousands of years before, long before sin offerings, long before the cross, sacrifice is built into the nature of reality as a matter of necessity, a matter of definition. You cannot have a hierarchy, you cannot have this fractal pattern of bodies without sacrifice. Anytime you have one whole thing that can become part of a greater whole thing, you necessarily have sacrifice. That's just what it is. And the rest of creation echoes it. God does not tell Eve, for instance, that he will create pain in begetting sons when he curses her. He tells her he will multiply the pain. Eve was already going to experience pain, bringing forth children. It was inevitable. It was creational. Sin increased and intensified the pain. It perverted the pattern of sacrifice. Adam was already going to get tired, sore muscles working the ground. He was made to work. Sin increased and intensified and perverted his work into toil. And in the same way, Adam and Eve would always have brought sacrifices to God. 
had they never sinned, and instead had they served God as he commanded, they would always have brought the fruit of their labors to him every seventh day in the garden to give them up to him. And then they would receive them back and eat them with him. Because they would have always needed to symbolically, liturgically, remember and reiterate and renew their integration into him as the highest and greatest thing. They would always have presented their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Because that would always have been, as Paul says in Romans 12:1, their spiritual service. They would always have bowed down before God, prostrating, or as most Bibles translate it, worshipping, in order to physically express their recognition and submission to the reality that God is higher than they are. They would always have sought to integrate themselves into God. And God would always have graciously accepted their offerings, bringing them into communion with himself, just as he continued to graciously accept the offerings given in faith by Abel and by Noah and by Abram and later by Jacob and Moses and, of course, ultimately, Christ. See how he speaks in the passages that we read today. Yahweh had respect unto Abel and to his offering. He accepted it. He integrated Abel into himself through that offering. Yahweh smelled the sweet savor, and Yahweh said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. He accepted Noah's sacrifice. And he not only accepted Noah, but because Noah was the new federal head of mankind at that time, he accepted the whole world. He was like, I will integrate the whole world once again into myself, and I will not disintegrate it as I had just done in the flood. That will never happen again because of this offering that Noah sent me. Or Abram, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. The priest of God Most High blesses Abram because of the tribute that he brings. Notice, incidentally, how Abram speaks to the king of Sodom. I have lifted up my hand unto Yahweh, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread nor a sandal strap, nor aught that is thine, nothing, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. He refuses to take of the substance of the king of Sodom because he will not have that king giving up anything to him. For that would mean that in some sense, he had been integrated into Abram, that they had become one together somehow. Abram wants nothing to do with that guy, as we learn why later. Sodom is destroyed because of its great wickedness. He wants no part with him. Well, I said I wanted to spend a little time considering this. I know from experience that while understanding the basic idea of sacrifice is fairly straightforward once it's explained, really grasping the implications and internalizing how pervasive that pattern is. Remember what pervasive means, Morris? Pervasive, spreading through everything. It's not something that you can do quickly, figuring out. The, the extent of sacrifice, how to apply it, is not easy. It takes sustained reflection, and it requires really coming at it from many angles. But spending more than about half an hour at a time trying to do this is a good way of wearing yourself out rather than actually making any progress. So if we're going to internalize the pattern of sacrifice, if we're really going to understand it deeply 
and more importantly, understand it in a way that actually drives us to live more sacrificially, more like Christ himself, then we need to circle back and look at it again from a more practical lens next time. You know how this works by now, right? I, I preach a theory from scripture and that way you can understand the importance and understand scripture itself better. And then I preach another sermon where we look at how to apply it to your own life and practically live it out. So next time I preach, I would look at how we are to live out God's call to sacrifice. What are some of the major ways that sacrifice is actually built into our lives? Um, how can we more intentionally follow those patterns? And of course, what are some of the major pitfalls that we face and how can we overcome them also? For now, I hope it is sufficient that you can go away reflecting on the idea of sacrifice, on the idea that we do not live for ourselves, but for things which are greater, which can exist only because we must give ourselves up to them. We disintegrate in order to reintegrate upwards. And that in turn obviously finds all of its ultimate meaning in God himself, the greatest thing. So let us now rest our brains and exercise our voices in singing, O Church, Arise.